Konnichiwa, this is Erica. Hey everyone, this is Freen, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. Today, we are joined by the co-founders of Uprising, Trisha and Hikari. And before we get started with the episode, we would like to say that um, there we have a trigger warning for any listeners. Um, we will be talking about sexual violence today. So if you feel uncomfortable um, hearing us discuss this issue, um, please feel free to exit out of this episode today and um, listen to any of our other episodes. Thank you. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today, Trisha and Hikari. Do you guys want to give you give a little introduction to everyone before we get started? Um, yeah, hi, I'm Trisha, and I'm one of the co-founders of Uprising with Hikari. Um, we started Uprising in the fall of 2017 when we were students in um, Tokyo at Temple University, Japan, um, whereas, um, which is where both of us did our undergrad. Um, and yeah, so now I'm living in London and I'm doing, like, I'm finishing up my master's. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I think that I don't need an introduction. Trish just gave my introduction for me. <laughs> but sorry, um, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Sorry, but Trish, then um, we graduated last year, so it's been about a year since we worked on Uprising, but we founded it together in the fall of twenty seventeen. So I think the the question on every listener's mind right now is what exactly is uprising um well we founded it in response to a sexual assault on our university campus and the goal of it was well firstly it it started out as an online magazine and uprising is a play on words between uprising and magazine so uprising um, and we started it with the aim to create conversation and raise awareness surrounding social issues at our university, and also just things that are specific to Japan through opinion pieces and art and creative writing and occasionally informative journalism. Um, and it's a club uh, run by students. Um, so currently it's go it's still running, um, but it's run by students at Temple University, Japan. Yeah, so we started Uprising um, as students, um, and we started it more so as, like, something to have within, like, our community and to address issues, like, within our institution that we felt weren't being addressed. And as Hikari said, it was in response to a sexual assault case that came forward. Um, and the lack of resources that were available at TUJ, so Temple University Japan at the time. And because we felt like these were issues and things that should be talked about, 
and we felt like it was kind of this unspoken thing that happened on university campuses and Temple University Japan is not an exception to that. So we felt like it was important to create a conversation and awareness around that. So why did you guys pick the, like, I don't know if medium is the right word, but like the medium of a zine and um, more to that, what is a zine for people who don't know? I know I only learned about it in like the past two years. So um, maybe you can elaborate on what that is and why you chose that over a different thing like a podcast or just a regular club on campus. Well, originally we wanted to put something out in writing because one of the very first things that we wanted to do is really just um, write out and we did a lot of research on what resources the university had and what was lacking. And so the best way for us to do that was to, at the time, create a website, write it all out and post it everywhere so that administrators and students could read about our concerns. Yeah, I think also part of the thing that was really important in creating a me or like using a medium that uses like writing and words is that there's a sense of like, not safety, but almost like a sense of just people can speak and like raise their concerns. And a lot of what we did was that we agreed to post like anonymous pieces. So like not necessarily people raising their concerns towards our university, but more so talking about like their life experiences and like what they had gone through and like kind of like giving them the platform that they might have needed at the time to be able to kind of express themselves while also not exposing them to just being like exposed to like everybody and like everybody knowing that they are the ones who had said that because when we talk about things like sexual violence it is a really difficult subject to talk about and not everybody wants to necessarily out themselves as a survivor but still want to talk about it and using writing as a medium was the way for us to allow that at the time yeah, so, so really, the, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, please. Um, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, sorry. You want go me ahead. to take over? Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, because you guys started this as a club on campus, um, did you run into any difficulties with the discrimination? administration sorry uh trying to get uprising off the ground talking about the things you were talking about what was that what was that journey like actually like and you know I think it sounds really easy to say oh like we started an online platform and we gave a space for students to write but I'm sure that there's probably a little a few more hiccups involved in the road and um yeah what what was the whole journey and process like it was many many hiccups for him <laughs> lots, of, lots of hiccups um but yeah we we had to talk to a lot of administrators and in the end a lot of professors faculty members were supportive um but as an institution they did not have enough resources for to help in order to help students um yes Trish you want to say something yeah no, I'm just waiting like <laughs> Um, no, I was going to add that, like, I think the big issue and the big hiccups that we ran into with our pricing is that 
we were a club that was technically in a way owned by the school because we operated under like them and they helped with funding. But the thing is, part of why we started Uprising was to spread awareness about these lack of resources and in a way fight an institution that we didn't agree with their um, approach to this. And I think the big issue is that you can't really fight an institution and also have you fight, like have them fund like the project that like you're fighting them on. Yeah. So and I think that's like where the big hiccups came because we didn't have any funding. Yeah, we had. And the we only had funding that we could get. Us, yeah. Yeah, the only funding we could get was from the university. But how do you ask the one institution you're fighting to give you money to fight them? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we had a professor before one of our who contributed to um, the zines, um, to making the physical copies of the zines. And he asked to look over the content before publishing and he asked us to change a few things. And of course, Trish and I were reluctant, but he said to us, you got to fund your own revolution <laughs> until then. Yeah, he, then had, yeah, he, he told us. Yeah. Yeah. I have yeah, a question. I think I remember. Uh, he, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, I remember him saying he was like, "You can't ask the state to fund your revolution." <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. Wait. So you guys have uh, you publish a physical zine as well, right? How often do you um, publish a zine, and do you give it out to students, or like, how does it work? While we were there, it was once a year. And we originally weren't going to publish physical zines, but actually a faculty member who was very supportive of us um, asked us, told us about the idea. Um, You know, they were like, you should publish a physical zine. You can give it to more people, hand it out to more. So first we published 300 copies. And then the semester, our last semester at uni, we published a thousand copies. And we spread them all over Tokyo. And um, I think Trish brought some to London as well. And... Yeah, I did. Yeah, we had a lot of we had we had actually quite a bit of people contacting us. Um, I think our zines are in a library in Edinburgh somewhere. And <laughs> Trish, I want one. Yeah, I have one. I just haven't seen you since like God knows when. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but if you want to know a fun um little story, is that. For the very first zine, we printed out 300 copies, but we had one of our members email condom companies in Japan, and they not didn't sponsor us, but they sent us 500 free condoms to the university in our name to put in the zines. Because we emailed them, we were just like, oh, like the person that was doing this, the member, just emailed them in Japanese being like, hey, we're the zine, this is what we do. We talk about sexual violence, sexual like education and like how important all of this is. Would you be willing to send us condoms? And then they just did. You That's guys so made condoms as well, right? I saw your little super special <laughs> condom. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, origin stories with condoms are my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's amazing. It's great that they were supportive, you know, because, like, it's still quite taboo in Japan, everything around sex and sex ed as well. So, yeah, that's really great. We, yeah, we tried to do the same thing for the second edition with pads and tampons, and pad and tampon companies were not cooperative. (laughs) 
Yes, I'm, I'm the one that emailed Pat and oh, Tampod Company. Yeah, yeah, the Pad and Tampon companies. I think most of them responded. Ninety percent responded, but it was you know. Yeah. So we got really lucky with the But yeah, I guess I'm um, going back to what you asked before as well. Like why we decided to do a zine. I mean, we didn't really think of it at the very beginning, but you know, once we started looking into like what people do zines for, a lot of the time it's like small. It's a lot of self-published work. Um, that's circulated within a community of people. It's kind of a grassroots sort of um, mm -hmm. way to get out information and talk about things. And so I think that's why we decided that a zine would be best. Yeah, so I just had a question like about demographics and I know it'll be a bit different because you guys aren't um, running Uprising actively right now, but would you say it was mostly male mostly female like what did the actual organization of the club look like and do you think that impacted the types of conversations and like who was receptive to actually reading the zine etc definitely our readership was mostly female from what we could tell from our social media sites and membership was also mostly female i would say so part of near the end of our time there we did a series where we interviewed a set of veterans at the university so they were military veterans because they make up quite a bit of the student population and so we thought that by including a demographic of students who would not usually be you know would not usually pick up a zine that we had published or go online and read something that we had done we could expand our readership a little bit as well and get more students involved in thinking about sexual violence and all of these issues that we were trying to advocate for yeah i think that like one of the things that like reflecting back on like what do we like the work that we've done and like how we published um, Uprising is that I think a lot of the time it was really hard not to be writing for like an echo chamber in a way, as in like all our readers were interested in what we were talking about, but they were not necessarily our target because like they were already aware of all of the things that we were trying to advocate for. But it was really hard as well to get through to people who normally wouldn't pick like pick up a zine and wouldn't be interested in these issues and sometimes more often than not we're actually opposed to like all of these like you know just a lot of things that come back on social media when you do activism and when you talk about sexual violence is oh it's not an actual problem or what about false accusations is something that like we very weirdly for a small community at TUG yeah, were asked a lot a about comments. and it was primarily yeah it was primarily from like like from like veterans and we, white we, men mean, we that were we slightly can't tell, older than um, for sure because it's social media people use fake names but But I mean, like, also just in person, like, I think about, like, in classes, Hikari, when we would talk about it, and I've had a few encounters of people being like, oh, but what about false accusations when I've brought up, like, some kind of statistic? So it was, like, a recurring trend, like, throughout, I think, the community 
that there was a lack of understanding of what sexual violence yeah, awareness but at the same meant. Time, I mean, we started out with, we had, I don't want to call it an agenda, but we had a goal. We started out that way, but yeah. as we were, yeah, as we were progressing and as we really started to think more about what uprising is and what it could become, we realized that if we don't reach this demographic of people who don't care or who oppose what we were writing and speaking about, then there's no meaning. I mean, not that there's no meaning, but like you said, we would be preaching to the choir. Yeah. I get that. Like, I think I I struggle with that with our own podcast sometimes. I'm like, oh, are we speaking? Like, our social media is quite... We it's weird because people always ask me, Oh, do we get hate? And I think, like, I think Erica, you can agree with this. I don't think we really do at all. Like, everybody is really supportive, which I think has to do with this idea of we're speaking mm-hmm. to an echo chamber. Like, everybody we're talking to already cares. And I often think, like, even like, um, we can see all of our statistics, like, demographically, who listens to the podcast. Um, and the male like listenership is growing which is great but again it's it's that type of male who is already interested in social issues and social justice and would probably already self-identify as a feminism and like i think the big question for all activists whether you're doing a zine or a podcast is how can you speak to people and have like productive conversations with people who are outside of your frame of thinking and like, I don't have a solution or like a way to target that yet. But like, it's interesting that you bring it up as well, because like, I've definitely noticed that in our own, like in our own podcast journey is we get a lot of support, which is great. But sometimes I wonder, are we speaking to the right people? And how do we target the right people? Not to say that it's not good for other people to listen, like you should always be educating mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. yeah, I completely agree with Freen as well. Um, I have a question, um, I guess with like our podcast, because we do everything online, we don't really have many face-to-face, you know, conversations about the podcast unless it's with, you know, friends, um, you know, people we know. Um, but I guess while like Trisha, you mentioned that you had some encounters on campus, um, who Mm -hmm. challenged, you Mm -hmm. know, um, whether it's, um, you know, uh, they were asking about false, false accusations and things like that. Like, how did you, um, respond to that sort of question? Um, yeah. I wish I could tell you that I responded very well, but I think that like (laughs) my, the way that I see things and the way that I respond to those things were very different back then. I think, and I think that was really hard sometimes to find the right words because I think at the time this was three years ago almost so at the time I was also still learning a lot and also kind of figuring out like how to challenge those ideas um but I think that a lot of the time we would just respond to them with just statistics and like explaining to them that like that's not the point that like we're trying to make But I think something that is really interesting that I just came to my mind is that for the longest time, I think for the first couple of months, we tiptoed around the word feminist when describing ourselves because we knew that that was like a word that within the TUG community specifically could be like a very like, 
like a word that people would right. take offense like, to trigger some people right and that's where like it comes like where it's really hard to draw the line between like how do you educate people who don't want to be educated about these things and who don't care about these things how do you appeal to them without also like giving mm-hmm. in to what they want you to do and censoring yourself mm-hmm. i'm sorry i don't know if that answered your question no, it's really interesting you say that. I, like, did a reading about how, you know, sometimes you have to be, like, strategic as a feminist and to get your goal made, sometimes you just have to drop the F word from, from your vernacular. You know, you go about it in other ways. Like, if you're trying to appeal to an economist about making good feminist economic policy, maybe just drop the feminist and say, look, this is just good economic policy. And you lay it out in... You use their words, you use their vocabulary, you use the stuff that they um, they like because they're probably more likely to be receptive and to listen to you that way, which, you know, it sucks because it, it in some ways feels like you're being dishonest to your yourself and your mission, but it's also the most strategic way to get your point across sometimes. So I totally understand you know, that fear around using the word feminist, especially in mm-hmm. Japan. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, yeah. but it's a, like, a dirty word mm-hmm. in Japan. One thing I am surprised about, though, is, um, well, yeah, I, I am kind of surprised. So TUJ is an American university, right? You would, you know, there's, and you can speak about this more than I can, but there is a history of, sexual violence especially in university culture especially I find in the U.S. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other countries of course it does Um, but I think our media has time and time again showed us that like sexual violence is really part of the university culture in in the U.S. so with that awareness that we all kind of collectively have I would think that TUJ as a you know more progressive American institution in Japan would be more willing to discuss the realities or like be more open to like recognizing their own institutional flaws, like perpetuating that type of sexual violence? Well, first, I think that although on paper, Japan really boasts relatively low rates of sexual assault and sexual violence. I read that um, it was a survey conducted by the cabinet office. I'm not sure what year it was, but one in 15 women in Japan reported, or one in 15 people in Japan reported experiencing rape at some point compared to one in five in the United States. Um, So, I mean, I think there's a whole system and there's a whole lot behind that number as well. Just because the number is lower doesn't mean that it doesn't happen in Japan or it happens less. Um, Oh, yes. And as for Temple being an American university, but in Japan, so a lot of what we talked to with administrators and lawyers at the school about was it it, it was very difficult because some things you have to follow Japanese laws and customs and some things you had to follow American laws and customs. And at the very end, right before we left the university, a Title IX coordinator um, so Title IX is a law that was put in place in the U.S. in the 70s um, against gender um, discrimination within education. So basically the concept of the law is to 
um, make sure that there is no like gender discrimination in education, whether that's in sports, in classes, or access to education. And so when it came into place at first, it was mostly targeted towards sports, I think, and gender discrimination towards like um, sports, like in universities. But um, as time like passed on and as sexual violence on campuses became an issue that people were more aware of rather than an issue that came about. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it became a law that made sure that schools were supposed to investigate allegations of sexual violence um, between students or not, and that they were supposed to protect their students if they came forward. Um, but I think t- like throughout the last two decades there's been a lot of changes to the law so there was the um dear colleagues letter that the obama administration put out asking for certain measures to be taken by universities um so for example when somebody files um a sexual assault complaint against another student at a university um the school is obligated to investigate it and to offer a non-partial like hearing if the charges brought forward are considered to be um, reasonable, like that there's no like reasonable doubt that like they're false. They have to investigate them and provide a hearing um, with a judge that's appointed then. Um, And at the time, one of the big things about the Dear Colleague letter was that they forbid cross-examinations during those hearings. So a victim of sexual violence cannot be um, interrogated by their perpetrator at the hearing. But And that was a great thing, I think, that was put in place. But the big problem now is that um, with the current Trump administration, Betsy DeVos has tried to um, just repeal all of those, um, all of, yeah, all of those notions and all of those laws and just does not believe really in due process and cross-examinations um, are going to be allowed again or that's what they're trying to um, put forward and there's a lot of issues now with what the current administration is trying to do to Title IX. Um, so I think he kind of cut off when she was explaining it earlier but how does Title IX relate to what you guys were doing at Uprising or to TUJ because uh, I know there's a connection there and if you could just explain it again because I think it cut off. As we mentioned at the very beginning, what made us start Uprising was it was it was started in response to a sexual assault allegation at the university within students. So at the time, students had no one to go to to talk about this or if they wanted to file a report, they had nowhere to go to. They didn't know who to talk to. Um, even if you did so institutionally, since they didn't have that sort of training, no one knew what to do with that information. But now with the Title IX coordinator, if people experience sexual harassment, sexual assault within university, within students, or even not, you have someone to go talk to who can help you list your options. And it's just many, it's, it's a lot more resources than there were when we started Uprising and before that. Um, yeah, so as Hikari was saying, like there were a lot of more resources at um, Temple University Japan um, 
since we've started uprising. But I think the big thing was that these resources were very much streamlined. And the problem with TUJ is because, you know, it is an American university. A lot of its resources are actually based in main campus. Um, but by appointing a Title IX coordinator on the Japan campus, it allowed for easier access for students and for somebody to help them and assist them in the process of reporting if that's what they wish to do. Because the big problem three years ago was that all reporting had to be done across the globe at main campus in Philadelphia, which causes a lot of problems when you don't have somebody physically present there and that fully understands like the environment that TUG operates in. Um, that's actually really interesting. So a Title IX coordinator is very unique to the American system, right? Like it's, it's, it's a product of the American mm-hmm. education system, but mm-hmm. I think its values are quite universal. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know everything about, you know, Japanese universities, but I think for listeners who might go to a Japanese university, the the role that an uh, cor- Article 9 coordinator plays might be something that people want to advocate for within their own schools, to have someone who is appointed um, to specifically deal with sexual violence and sexual assaults and, and any gender-based discrimination because it, it provides a point of contact and, like you said, like streamlines things. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Oh, I was going to ask a question. Oh, can I say one thing? Um, so I, mm-hmm. as you guys know, went to Sophia, and I didn't have to, um, you know, contact anyone at the university administration about sexual assault, but I know some people who did, and that I don't exactly know how the system works within the university, but what I heard from people who have tried to, um, you know, have get access to more resources within the university is that there is um, like a Uketsuke somewhere, you know, some um, a place within the university can, uh, where you can go talk to someone about this issue, uh, about, you know, um, what happened. And... Um, you basically fill out a paper and, you know, you just uh, describe what happened and then they process that and that's it and that there's no- nothing beyond that. And so it's more for kind of like keeping record. I don't really know, like, what's the point of that? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, like, it really sounds to me, like, I don't know what it is like in other universities here in Japan, but it seems like you know, it's just they have that so that they can say that they have something to say that they, you know, mm-hmm. they have something um, where, you know, that, that the university cares about the students, but it, it just shows that they don't really have anything that really helps students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, and Sophia is, I mean, it's not the most progressive, but I think within universities in Japan, it's rather progressive. Um, So I can't imagine what it is like in a lot of other Japanese universities. I'm sure there is, you know, in some places there isn't any sort of um, window or where you can go talk to people. 
Yeah, I think in that sense, um, Temple did a really good job um, in terms of, yes, everything the way, I mean, not always the way they handled things, but as a result, this is what they were able to do. Whereas I think in a lot of Japanese universities, it's still very much behind. And I know that at Sophia, I don't know too much, but there's there's a circle, there's Speak Up Sophia, who does a lot of mm-hmm. yeah. similar work. And I went to, while I was doing an internship before, um, before I started working at my job right now, I went to one of their lectures and they were also talking about how because Sophia is a Christian university, a lot of the professors and faculty there they just think as a baseline, people do not have sex until they're married. Abstinence is key. So why do we even have to talk about all of this? So I found that really interesting. Yeah, right. so I think there's a lot of that things. Is really that interesting. Um, it's interesting. So I think if somebody is listening who isn't in university right now, um, it the idea of needing someone specifically appointed for university like a Title IX coordinator, it might sound a little bit, you know, weird. Like, why do, you, why do you need specific mechanisms within the school rather than the pre-existing societal um, reporting measures that we already have? And I think it kind of goes back to this idea that sexual violence and university culture are really mm-hmm. closely intertwined. And, you know, not just in Japan, but, like, around the world. Um, but... I don't know if anybody wanted to speak to the issue of universities and how in whether knowingly or unknowingly they perpetuate like sexual violence within their own systems. Yeah, I mean, I guess to start off, the first thing that comes to my mind is, yeah, when I, I guess, think of American universities, I especially with like fraternities and things like that, organizations like that where, you know, they, a lot of students, if they do something, even if they do something that is wrong on different, on different sorts of levels, it often goes um, unnoticed or, you know, a lot of students don't get punished for things. Um, And while, you know, we were talking about how we see that more kind of we have that association more with the university, uh, American universities. Like I also think of like circles in Japan where like student circles, student orgs, um, I've heard horrible stories, you know, where, uh, of sexual assault happens very openly, um, and is kind of, you know, kept as a secret. So I think like you said, Vereen, like it's Mm -hmm. a very universal issue and, there is a system that kind of allows that to happen and goes unnoticed. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Trisha, specifically mm-hmm. because you've studied in both Japan and now you're doing your master's in London. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> How And you're doing your master's in London in a very progressive school, um, SOAS, for those who don't know. And yeah, what kind of difference, if any, have you seen between and that you want to talk to, it's fine if you don't want to talk about it. Um, but what kind of difference have you seen between TUJ and SOAS and their kind of approaches to, you know, gender-based violence issues or, or just inclusivity in general and that type of thing? I think, yeah. I think that 
SOAS in itself within UK universities, for those who don't know, is already very like ahead of its time in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a university that is very pro like um, activism and social movements and like strikes and asking for like things that are due to students and faculty and advocating for their rights. Um, they're also like very aware on just social issues be it like gender issues or um issues of sexual violence of race class um all of those things um but i can definitely see that it was a stark difference between going from tuj which is an american university in japan to soas in london and i felt like it was just something that like people talked a lot more about like it was there like it was in your face it was always just this is real this is what's happening these are all issues that are real and we're not going to pretend that they're not and I think one of the big thing that I that kind of amazed me when I came to SOAS is that I had to take as an incoming student I had to take a um consent workshop that lasted two hours and every incoming student at SOAS has to take it before they can start like official classes um but the great thing about SOAS is that this is run by the student union primarily and is a project that is done by them um and they offer workshops where you're assigned to them and you go and they're for everybody or they assign like workshops specifically for sexual violence survivors to make it a safer space for them to come and talk about these things without feeling like they might be triggered going to a workshop about consent because that can be a really difficult thing to go to. Um, I thought that was great because people had the option to go to a different one if they needed to. And I think that it's very like inclusive. And I think that's something that like a lot of universities will hopefully eventually get to but when I look at SOAS and TUJ I can see that TUJ is just not there yet even just so um it's kind of complicated to understand for people who don't know the UK education system Mm -hmm. but so SOAS is a college um at the University of London yes that's right so I go to LSE in the mm-hmm. UK in London, which is also mm-hmm. um, a college of the University of London. Mm-hmm. So so as an LSE are, you know, for lack of a better term, sister schools in a way. Like I was able to take classes at SOAS. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just even me, you know, taking that one class at SOAS, which is how Trisha and I met, I noticed such a stark difference. So at LSE, which is, again, still part of the University of London, there is no mandatory consent workshop. We, we just don't really talk about sexual violence. I mean, institutionally, we don't. We talk about it a lot in my department, but that's because I'm in the you know gender department at LSE. But as a school, institutionally, it's not something that's discussed. Mm-hmm. And even when I was coming to SOAS to take that one class, I had to do the two-hour mandatory workshop. And I, I remember just sitting there being like, whoa, what? Like, LSE doesn't have this. Yeah, so I was just going to add something. I remembered something when I went to the consent workshop and I was like, so I'm a master's student, so I'm a little bit older than like everybody else there. Um, But I had, so the workshop was completely like random. Like I was just with people that I didn't know. So I was with a bunch of like 17, 18 year olds. And I was like, I thought that was great because at 17, 18 year old, like when you start uni, I feel like that's something that you should be taught. 
that you should like talk about and I remember this one kid who was I forget where he was from I think he was Polish um and he walked out of and he was he kept making comments and trying to like challenge like the people who were heading the workshop and he came out of it and he looked at me he's like it's such a hard time being a white man these days and I just (laughs) he was being sarcastic no he was dead serious (laughs) he was like oh I keep having to watch what I say in these workshops and all these places that I'm going to and to me it was kind of just like crazy but also that shows that even at a school like SOAS that is known for being way ahead of its time in terms of like education and like the things that it puts forward, even there, like there's still so much work to be done. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think all schools can learn from the way that SOAS approaches its students and learning and not just learning as something you do in the classrooms, but like learning about things like, you know, mm-hmm. how to have healthy sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I just, I remember thinking that that was so interesting that it was a mandatory consent workshop because I'm doing my master's now as well. And I've gone to two UK universities now mm-hmm. and I did a year at Sophia Mm-hmm. And I've never come across something like that. And I just thought it was, like, for lack of a better term, I thought it was brilliant. Like, whoever came up with that was a fucking genius. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had gone to a school that had something like that. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Us all, like, reflecting on our past education. I know we're all like having a moment right now. We're all like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Wish things were different. (laughs) But yeah, for anyone listening, like Farin was saying before, I think it's something, you know, I wish I, as a student, had taken more kind of action to look into um, resources and also, you know, resources at, you know, at the university um, and... Mm -hmm how you know what they are and how how they contribute to um how they can help students and what lacks and like so how you can as a student you still have you know you you of course have a say in um how things should be done and um you have some leverage as a student at that school so I think it's a great Mm -hmm. thing to look into that even if you haven't you know, whether you've experienced sexual assault yourself or not, um, I think especially if you haven't, um, you know, that's something you can really, that would benefit all students. Um, Yeah, I can imagine it could be difficult if you have to, but um, yeah, that's something that every school really needs. So, you know, we've talked a lot about uprising and universities, but two of the four of us right now are actually no longer in university. And Trisha, you and I are almost done our university <laughs> careers for the meantime. No, no hopes of a PhD anytime soon. <laughs> so what are you guys doing now? Like, so you have moved on from uprising. It's, you know, the, the club actually still exists. So you can talk about that, but 
what kind of work do you see yourselves doing now? Um, how do you engage with activism outside the university community? Yeah. Amazing question. The impossible question. <laughs> what do you want to do later? <laughs> but I think when it comes to like engaging with activism, like outside of the university, I'm going to say this and hope that none of my roommates ever find this podcast. Um, but I think the one thing I've learned um, moving back to London, like I lived in Japan for four years. And before that, I hadn't lived in Europe for about eight years. So, but I am French, like I was born in France, um, I'm half, and I hadn't lived in Europe for a really long time. And I think the big thing that like I found out coming back here was just that people know less than even I thought that they would. Like I live with my roommates, they're all like European and one of them is American. Um, but I feel like I spend a lot of my time just having to challenge them on really basic notions of things like racism like just I've had to like start implementing new works like white like words like white privilege like into their vocabulary because like before I started like explaining those things to them they didn't really know what that meant um and I feel like not being in university I didn't think that this is what my activism would turn into that I would come home and have to kind of educate my roommates about like sexual violence and racism and classism (laughs) so I guess that's what I've been doing this quarantine yeah I guess to reflect um off of what Trisha just said um I think you make a really good point that you know it's important to have these conversations not just in spaces where you know your audience kind of is familiar with these vocabulary and these issues Mm -hmm. but to have these conversations with you know whether it's at home with roommates or family or at workplaces um regardless of where it is and who you're with um it's important to have these conversations and I think that is a lot more difficult than we realize um Mm -hmm. yeah because if you're you know like like right now it's quite easy to talk about um these issues because we know that we're all passionate about um, advocating for better, whether it's, you know, um, awareness of sexual violence or sex ed, things like that. But when you're actually put in situations where people like challenge fundamental things about, um, things you're advocating for, it can be really difficult. But I think the point is to, yeah, like try, like, like Trisha, like you just said, yeah. Yeah, I just want to clarify, like, yeah, like, I talked about, like, my roommates and stuff, um, but I think that, like, a lot of it comes down to the fact that, like, I am very, like, educated in the sense where, like, this is what Mm -hmm. I studied in school, so to me, it's almost like I don't, I don't think that what they're saying is right, but also I'm not trying to, like, shit on them and be like, oh, they don't know, I think it's just something that, like, people have different levels of knowledge about these things and obviously it is up to them to educate themselves but also I feel sometimes like as somebody who has been 
privileged enough to have the education that I have and all these things, I feel like it's also in part like my responsibility to tell them that because I have that knowledge. That empathy, that empathy that you have for your roommates is something that I learned really early on when I started my master's in gender. And it's this idea that like, we, we need to have empathy for, for people, we can't just always assume that they are inherently bad. Like, it's not just them like you said yeah there's a responsibility for people to educate themselves but also if the education system which they were you know forced to be in for 12 years has failed to teach them about any of these topics there is a degree Mm -hmm. of empathy that that we should have when educating like you're right we don't need to just be like oh well we know best like how could they be so ignorant it it's a little bit more nuanced than that and I think approaching it with that kind of sensitivity it's being like yeah, okay, they're adults, and maybe they should learn some of this by themselves. But also, like, I was really privileged, like you said, to have these experiences and to know this stuff. And I should use I could use that to, to help them and maybe also understand that it's not necessarily their fault that they grew up in an environment where they just didn't have access to that type mm-hmm. of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, I think, like, looking back when I was younger, I when I was younger, I went to a public Japanese school. Um, for uh elementary school and like looking back at myself then like my English wasn't as good as it is now and I was culturally a lot more Japanese um than I am now and I think I mean I was a lot younger but still like I wouldn't have if I continued the type of education that I had then like I definitely would not have been able to think the way I do now so like I totally agree with what you said like you know people can grow and they Mm -hmm. like things like racism or sex sexism like that there are things that they learn and it's not impossible to unlearn or learn that they're Mm -hmm. you know learn kind of like how they came about and yeah how they work and whatnot yeah I think like being in Japan as well there's so much that I mean, we don't know about, you know, I mean, I don't think that a lot of people know that the age of consent here is 13 or that up until three years ago, men couldn't get raped. They couldn't be mm-hmm. uh, victims of rape because just three years ago for the first time, there's 110 years where they expanded the definition of rape to include oral and anal sex. Um and I mean, the police and the courts here really define rape narrowly, um, and they generally pursue cases only when there's both physical force and self-defense. And um, in a sense, I mean, I've also been very, very privileged, as I think all of us have in terms of education, especially, but um, also for me in the sense where I gotten to use that privilege to choose the spaces that I want to be in so a lot of the time as you mentioned before as well but it's an eco chamber when I'm talking to the people around me so maybe that's why I've been dating a guy for a year where um he has not really thought about a lot of these issues or he has thought a lot about these issues um but in a sense it's it's really good for me as well because he, he points out flaws in my arguments and things that, you know, I think if you're talking to like-minded people, you don't actually think about. And in terms of what I'm doing right now, 
um, I'm in journalism right now. Um, and I think what I'm supposed to do there, it's, it's difficult in a way. I was talking to this, I was talking with Erica about this earlier because we really have to be void of our beliefs. And I think that's a really hard thing to do, especially for me, um, because my job is to look at society and to see what's happening and report those facts. Um, so it could be really difficult to take yourself out of the picture, myself out of the picture, but at the same time, the things that we write about and the things that we report about and research about can also sway a lot of opinions. So I think there is a lot of weight there. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this kind of, you know, as part of your job is the to be somewhat detached from your emotions, um, which it's something I, I I was texting a boy yesterday and he asked me, I'm like, what do you think like your greatest quality is? And I was like, you know what? I think my greatest quality is also my biggest flaw. And it's that I am very, I'm, I think very emotionally. And so I have, you know, a, a hard time disconnecting from the personal. Um, and I think that's good because, you know, the person is political and, you're, I, I think there's a lot of tendency in academia and in the world, and I think this has to do with masculinity, it's a conversation for another day, but there's this tendency in the world to discount anything that is emotional or emotionally intelligent because we see that what is rational or like what we think is detached is somehow better than what is informed by our own feelings and our own emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's something that like, oh, if you want to work in policy, oh, if you want to work in journalism, you have to be objective. You can't be emotional. You can't use your emotions to guide your work, which is something I really struggle with because I think that that's intuitively what I do. Like you can hear me get emotionally worked up about things when I talk on the podcast. Like my whole brand and personality is using my emotions to guide like what I do. And it's something that I... I'm struggling so much with as someone who doesn't have a job right now, but is looking for a job is this kind of idea that you have to put that to bay when I, I think that society undervalues emotion. I think emotion can be really useful. Yeah. I think like, I think I'm kind of like in the same boat as you, Serena. I think that we've had this talk like the couple of times that like, you know, we've hung out and stuff. Like, I think we're very similar in the sense. Like I also think very emotionally and that's a big problem. Like I have a hard time separating those two things and with both of us being students and like looking for work, like sometimes I just, I've been having a crisis, obviously like trying to find a work and like not really knowing like what I want to do, because as you said, like, and, like, as Erica and Hikari said, like, they have to separate, like, their emotions from, like, their work. And I feel like that's something I struggle a lot with as well. And I feel like, yeah, like, we're in the same boat in the sense where I don't really know, like, how I'm going to go about, like, working and not having these emotions, like, get in the way of, like, my politics and what I want to advocate for. And definitely, mm-hmm. too, though, when I started my job, I think besides congratulations the advice I received from the most people was you realize you have to detach at some level of course passions can be a starting point but you have to follow the facts as much as possible but then thinking about it this way I guess Mm -hmm. Erica and I were we we are working right now but our jobs are we have to be observers but then there are jobs where you can be activists and you Mm -hmm. fight something um, and you have a cause and so I think it yeah, it's hard, but it, it, 
uh, yeah, finding work. <sighs> yeah, I'm thinking about this because for the like, so I'm studying gender and law, and for the longest time, I was like, I'm gonna go to law school. But over the last Come to couple law school months, with me. No, but Celine, over the last couple months, I've had a crisis where I'm like, the legal system is broken and I don't believe in it. Why would I work for it? And so now I'm at a point in my life where I'm just like, I think that the legal system is broken and I don't want to work for it because I don't believe in it. And I'm just like, now what do I do? (laughs) Trisha. I said this to my dad. I was like, why would I want to be a lawyer? Like, the whole legal system is heteronormative. Like, do we really need laws? Like, laws perpetuate more violence. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I was regurgitating all of Vanya's class. I was like, I don't know. Like, I just think that, like, even if we use laws, like, all we're doing is we're, like, expanding heteronormative legal principles, like, across the world and, like, across, you know, marginalized communities that might have been excluded from law in the first place. But, like, what benefit is it if we're just including them in laws that are inherently violent? And I was like, so like, why would I want to be a lawyer? And my dad was just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah. well, like I feel your struggle. I feel your struggle so hard, Trisha. Because I was like, always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But now I'm like, wait. I mean, part of me is still considering law. But part of me is like, but it's a contradiction to everything I believe in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also like also also when you're starting off, you know, after graduating and um you know, getting your first job or whether it's not your you know, even if it's not your first job when you're just starting your career, like it's not like you have a lot of say in things in general whether it's at work or just with career. You know, it's not like you have the most experience and you don't have all these, you know, other list of, you know, ex, you know, job experience and everything. So you have to, I do mm-hmm. feel like you just have to sacrifice something for a little bit and learn from it. <laughs> I don't know. This is how I feel that, you know, there there's going to be a lot of things that um, you see whether it's about the company or whether it's about how society works, um, things that are, you know, flawed um, anywhere. And I feel like it's, but that experience in itself, like seeing what works and what, or what is, what you think is right and what you don't think is right, um, what you think you could, what you think could be improved. I think being able to see those things is also a good learning learning experience although it is very very difficult and you know it can crush you at times um but from learning uh by learning from those experiences you know you can put that to use in the future too so that's something to be hopeful about um yeah Does anybody have any, like, concluding remarks that they want to touch upon? I think my concluding remark would be that from today's conversation, we've all learned that education and, like, educating yourself is a lot of emotional labor, and educating others is even more emotional labor. <laughs> Can I agree more? <laughs> and a lot of them are- And education doesn't stop at university. 
like you know we started this conversation talking about uprising talking about your journey with sexual violence in universities and we're ending it talking about trying to educate ourselves in our day-to-day life so oh yeah oh no 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 but yeah no we always have more to learn um oh what I was gonna say is that also a lot of the times emotional labor falls on women but that's also for another podcast episode oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) Yeah, we can have a round two. Yeah, we can have a round two. Yeah, that's, yeah let's just leave that there because we could go on hours, I'm sure. But it was so lovely yeah. having you girls here. And um, yeah, hopefully maybe we can do another recording sometime. But um, well, thank you for, you know, all the work that you've put into Uprising in the past, but also the work you know, the emotional labor you do day to day as well. Um, I feel like that often goes unrecognized as well. And it's exhausting. So thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And Hikari, get your butt to London ASAP. (laughs) Trisha, stay in London and wait for me. Erica, get on a plane and hurry up so we can all have a little 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 get get together. IRL in London. Yeah. Yes, thank, thank you, you for so having much. us, and thank you for like everything that you're doing for like, and for having this conversation and continuing to have these conversations, whether it's with us or other people or like the, like the ones around you or with each other. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Very important. Thank you guys, and thank you to all the listeners. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. See you on the next episode. See you. Thank you all. Make sure you follow Super Smash Host podcast on Instagram. And uh, Trisha Hikari, do you have anything you want to plug, or are you good? Uh, you have anything to plug? Um, well, we can put anything. What you guys can give, um, if there is anything, you can send it to us, and we'll have it in the part uh, episode description. So, yeah, sounds yeah. good. Yes. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks so Bye. much.